When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 114th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is, Does Your Idea Scale? I'm joined by John A. List. He is the author of The Voltage Effect, How to Make Good Ideas Great and Great Ideas Scale. The publisher is Currency. John is a professor of economics at both the University of Chicago and the Australian National University. He's a former chief economist at both Lyft and Uber and now holds that position with Walmart. He's also served on the Council of Economic Advisors for the White House. Welcome to the show, John. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me. Uh, only 114 episodes later, but I'm, I'm really happy to be here, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm happy you're here as well. Uh, late to the party, but uh, not the least guest by any means. <laughs> so um, give us a brief overview of the book, if you don't mind. No, sure, sure. The book is kind of a, a tale of two cities, if you will. The, the front nine of the book, or the first five chapters, are about what are the signatures of ideas that can scale? And what are the signatures of ideas that are predictably unscalable? So the first half of the book teaches us about what to look for in ideas before we splash a bunch of money in them and try to scale them. And then the back half of the book is really about what I would call four little behavioral economic secrets to execution. So the notion here is after you launch your idea, you still have to execute. And current economic thinking or behavioral economics can really shed light on the decision making that you make as not only an entrepreneur, but as a, an individual in your entire life. I think the back half of the book 
speaks to any important decisions that you make. Okay. So before we get to the the back nine and even the front nine, I'm going to start in the clubhouse just for a moment. Um, So behavioral economics, I mean, you say my specialty is conducting field work in behavioral economics. I think for some listeners, they would might welcome a clarification of what you might see as the difference between behavioral economics and what some people use, which is the term behavioral science. We can just kind of level set on that basis first. Yeah, absolutely. So the way I, I would think about behavioral economics is you have the standard neoclassical economic model, and that does a really good job in general. But when it comes time for specific predictions and specific prescriptions, sometimes it's lacking because humans are human. And behavioral economics adds psychology, sociology, computer science, whatever field is necessary to make the standard economic model more predictable or more realistic. So I think behavioral economics is this mix between economics on the one hand and any other science that you want to throw with it on the other. Sure. And Adam Smith, for that matter, you know, was not just merely an economist. He was very interested in what was called then moral sentiment, which you could call psychology, philosophy, et cetera. Oh, absolutely. um, I think Adam Smith is is probably – the behavioral economist, uh, economist, right? Uh, this is a person who, uh, on the one hand, he understood deeply meanings of economics in a philosophical sense, and he understood individuals. And he added that as exactly as you're saying, Dan, is a is a way to think about it in a psychological sense. And moral sentiments is really one of the greatest books in behavioral economics that's ever been written. Yeah, no, and I, I think he's he's also very modest in a way. He he allows himself that he in one book to the next that he makes corctions, additions. Um, you know, reminds me a bit of Darwin, who's the same way. Absolutely, absolutely, that's a good point. So, um, I was curious because you you make this point, and I, I think it's true. You say for a long time, and then you say a scandalously long time in retrospect, social scientists saw economics and psychology as separate domains. Coming into this field later in life, I mean, I'm absolutely shocked that it took so long for those separate domains to come together. So thank God for Kahneman, Tversky, and many other people, including yourself. But why in the world did it take so long? I just am curious. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. You know, for, for years, the economic profession sort of focused on if you'd be willing to pay $10 for a T-shirt, And then we look at the millions of people who are willing to pay $10 for a T-shirt. We look at then how that affects market outcomes. So it's more or less from the individual to the market. And economists didn't really focus on what are the underpinnings for why you value that T-shirt for $10. And that's sort of saying, okay, it's $10 and then going to the inner workings of the mind and how we can get people to behave in certain ways if we have taxes or nudges or what have you. So I I think it was really a matter of economists felt their domain was at the market level and it was looking at market interactions and effects of markets. Think about macroeconomics with inflation and interest rates. And psychologists, on the other hand, were focused on the individual the individual in a lab 
in a classroom at the University of Chicago, for example. But when you put those two together, you really have much more magic than the two alone, because of course, individuals are bringing their own quirks to the market. And if you can understand why does somebody value that t-shirt for $10, and you can understand what is a person's underlying motivations, it leads to a lot better solutions for how to change the world for the better. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. To me, that's it's the most fascinating way in which to approach, uh, you know, economics. So let's let's move into the book proper. I think there's a really key statement you make a couple of times. I think I understand what you're saying, but I'm going to let you unpack it for for listeners. Uh, you say we need to move from evidence based policy to policy based evidence. What does that entail? What does that mean? You are a very smart man because you have picked up on one of the very important pieces in chapter three of the book is I don't think as academics or scholars or researchers that we are answering the right question if we really want to change the world at scale. So just as background, I do a lot of field experiments, and I've done field experiments for 30 years. And for your listeners, you've all probably been part of one of my field experiments. So if you've taken an Uber or Lyft, or if you've flown United Airlines, if you voted in the, one of the past two presidential elections, you've been part of one of my field experiments, okay? So just a level set. Now, when I, when I lecture, there are usually a, a group of people in the room who say, you know, Professor List, we've been at poverty alleviation, we've been at climate change, we've been at discrimination, we've tried to answer these questions for years, and if field experiments are so great, how come we haven't put a dent in those problems? How come we haven't come up with better solutions? And my simple answer is we have been asking and answering the wrong question. Here's what I mean by that. Let me let me do this in, as an example, because I think it's easier to understand. So I started a, pre, a pre-K school in Chicago. And in that pre-K school, I was setting it up from soup to nuts to help three, four, and five-year-olds get ready for kindergarten. Okay, so I, I opened a preschool in, in a suburb of Chicago called Chicago Heights, and I run this experiment, and the experiment actually works brilliantly. I, I am moving these children from the 20th percentile in cognitive test scores all the way to the 55th percentile within six months. So I'm, I'm just doing great things for these kids, and I'm really happy. So then I want to go to scale it. And what I mean by scaling is I want to take that idea that worked in the Petri dish, it worked in Chicago Heights, and I want to populate every community around Illinois or every community in the Midwest. I want everyone to receive my program. Okay. Yeah, I want to scale it, right? I want to change the world. So now I should look at how did I run that first Petri dish experiment in Chicago Heights. Here's basically what I did. I hired really good teachers. And I hired teachers in a way 
that would give my idea its best shot. And that's typically what social scientists do. They say, look, a donor gave me money and I want to show the donor that the idea works. I also want to write an academic paper that will get published in a big, important journal, maybe Nature or Science or in Economics, the American Economic Review. And I want the New York Times to write up my research, right? This is what a lot of academics, of course, are after is prestige and growing their reputation. Okay. And prestige, therefore, over actually it working. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you set it up in the Petri dish by using the best available inputs and you're presenting these great results in the Petri dish. That's really evidence-based economics. So that's really an efficacy test. But what happens in the social sciences is that people write up that paper and they don't let everyone else know that it was an efficacy test. And then when people go to try to scale it, it doesn't work. There's a voltage drop. And people wonder, well, why? Well, the reason why is because in the Petri dish, we did not examine the true features of the idea that should have been examined. So think about Chicago Heights. If I scale that around Chicago, I'm going to have to hire 30,000 good teachers. In Chicago Heights, I only had to hire 30. It's not that difficult to hire 30 good teachers, but it's very difficult to hire 30,000 good teachers. Okay, so what is the quality of my average teacher going to look like if I hire 30,000? Of course, it's going to be a lot lower. They're going to be marginal teachers, and I'm going to have to hire a lot of them if I want to keep my budget in check. So what I have now is when I think about policy-based evidence, I should have taken those types of teachers that I would have to hire at scale, and I should have brought them into the Petri dish, and I should have examined, does my early childhood program work with the kinds of teachers I'm going to have to hire at scale. That's policy-based evidence. It's bringing in the warts or the constraints, whether they're regulatory constraints or moral constraints or financial constraints, whatever. I want to bring those into the Petri dish, and I want to ask, does my idea still work when I have those warts in place? That's trying to change the world, and that's a question we should be asking and answering. No, no, I, I love that. I mean, subjecting it to what I guess I'll call rigorous reality, warts and all. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. It's really going to hold up. Uh, nice, shiny car in the driveway, uh, but can it get me across the country? Absolutely. Okay. So let me go back to uh, another question as we keep moving deeper into the, the book itself. Um, when you come to an assignment, and you mentioned the one with the school, um, you've got all these cases where you're, you're mentioning various cognitive biases, et cetera, uh, terms like confirmation bias, bag, bandwagon bias, winner's curse, uh, that you drop into the book and they inform how you're looking at problems and what's going on there uh, as you go through these voltage opportunities and uh, the secrets to making it actually work. Do you have a cheat sheet that you go with? Do you just have instincts? You're so conversant with these terms that they just you can figure out which one applies. Do you have certain 
uh, terms that are kind of like your your go-to framework, your cheat sheet almost that are, are the seminal ones for you? I'm wondering how that, that works on a no, practical basis. No, that's a good basis. question. That's a really good question, Dan. So I, I would say there are a few, let's call them pillars of behavioral economics that are, are more or less laws and it's not truly a law in the in the natural scientific sense, you know, where, where you have quantitative laws. But, you know, you have laws like losses, for example, are felt more acutely than gains. So what, what that is, is exactly as you mentioned earlier, Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky did some fundamental work in the 70s on loss aversion. This has really become a pillar in, in behavioral economics in that in pretty much every setting you can find some manifestation of loss aversion. So, so that means that that's a behavioral preference or insight that we can leverage. And things like confirmation bias, this is something that when you talk to entrepreneurs or when you talk to leaders, unless they're really, really in the deep right tail of leadership. And what I mean by deep right tail is, you know, 99.999th percentile, they're going to fall prey to confirmation bias. And by confirmation bias, I mean, they have instincts. And then they tell people, go out and do some research for me and bring back the data. What typically will happen is any data that is in favor of their instinct, they say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's really good. And then any data that's kind of at odds, they say, well, that's probably an error or it's an outlier. It's not the truth. And in many cases, people who scale, they're scaling ideas because of their confirmation bias. There, there really was never any voltage to begin with. It was simply a false positive. So in the- I, I got it. That, that, is, that is so true. I've got to interrupt you for a moment before we move on to a few more. So I was up the road in Milwaukee not long after I started my company, and I meet with a researcher, and she mentioned she was at some previous company, and it was a little bit more prestigious, actually. And I said, why did you leave that company? She said, because I was subject to confirmation bias. And I said, I said, please tell what's the story. She said, so the vice president calls me into the office, and I, she said, I knew right away it was going to be a bad conversation because he opens by saying, I thought you were smarter than this. So she says, I, I wait. And then he says, so I'm looking at your research study. You know, I'm in, in, in a uh, pitched turf battle with another VP here at the company. And uh, your report indicates that my, my idea only marginally won. He said, now, I don't care how you ask the questions. I don't care how you do anything regarding the methodology, but you don't come back into my office until you can show that I overwhelmingly won based on my idea. <laughs> Now you can get out of here. <laughs> that's exactly that's exactly right. That that you know that's really part of chapter one in a nutshell, right? Is that you have these these behavioral quirks that people have, and they they seem like super smart people, but it's really hard for them to overcome this really really strong kind of of bias, cognitive bias that they have. Okay, so I can't resist. So we've got two pillars. One is loss aversion. I utterly agree with confirmation bias. I utterly agree with. You got maybe two more or a few more handful. I think this is really productive. No, no, absolutely. So, so let's think about non-financial incentives for a for a minute, or or non-pecuniary incentives. So, 
In the past, economists have primarily focused on money and, and how prices affect people's behaviors. You know, that's been more or less the backbone incentive that economists have looked at. And I think with behavioral economics, it's brought in an entirely new dimension. And that dimension is the fact that non-financial incentives are in many cases much more important than financial incentives. So I think the third pillar is never underestimate non-financial incentives. And kind of a story to, that I talk about in chapter six is that, you know, when I worked, when I was chief economist at Uber, we, we rolled out tipping. So my group was responsible for rolling out tipping on the Uber app back in the summer of 2017. And what we noticed was there are very few people who tip on every trip. For example, only one out of 100 people actually tip every Uber trip. And when you look at the other side of that coin, three out of five people never, ever tip. So you say, okay, where's John going with this story? Let's now look at those same people when they take a yellow cab and they pay face-to-face at the end of the trip. Remember, in Uber or Lyft, you make the decision to tip in the comfortable confines of your office or your your own home. You're not doing it face-to-face with the driver. But in traditional cabs, you do it face-to-face. Now guess what happens? 90 to 95% of people tip on every trip. So this tells you how important social pressure, social norms, social image, all of these features are ubiquitous. And in modern economies, they play very important roles. And that example kind of shines an important light on humans are, are one in one sense creatures who are trying to maximize their own satisfaction But on the other hand, they're very social creatures and their surroundings affect their behavior a lot. And non-financial incentives can be a very important tool for leaders in organizations. Okay. Yeah. No, it makes me think a little bit about inequality aversion, which is one I think is really interesting, especially in cultures. You know, if we don't feel like things are fair, how we're going to respond. But um, No, no, that's exactly right. So part of this social preference is... That, that, you know, when I say social preference, I mean altruism and, and impure yep. altruism and warm glow and inequity aversion. You're right. Or, or, or greed or uh, strategic reciprocity. Like all of these play very important roles. And inequity aversion, especially now what we find in our own research is inequity aversion is much more important when you're behind versus when you're ahead. <laughs> but Imagine like that. obvious, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people feel behind these days. Yeah, but, no um, yeah. kidding. No kid, look, I'm with them. So maybe one last one. I, I know we've we've spent more time with this, but I, I've found it really fascinating. Yeah, one yeah. more pillar. No, no, maybe one last on? one is let's just talk about framing in general. And and framing in general, so simply how you frame the question or the choice. So think about defaults. One of the major pillars in behavioral economics is that defaults work. 
And what I mean by defaults is if you ask somebody, do you want to do this? If you've checked the box, yes, I want to do it already. And they just have to click OK. They're much more likely to do it than if you don't check any boxes for them. So the default, it induces people to save more. It induces people. I've done experiments on organ donation. So it induces people to be organ donors much more often because of the default bias. Firms use this all the time. So I think that's a, a, an example of the power of framing. And the default bias is nearly every time it works in a very predictable way. Okay. So let's swing uh, right into the, the heart of the book. I'm looking at those five vital signs. And just to summarize it for, for listeners, uh, false positives, overestimating, unscalable ingredients, unintended consequences, too costly to sustain scale. Those are all things you got to look out for. Have you found in your research, I mean, this is maybe an unfair question, but are, you said that 50 to 90% of programs will lose voltage at scale. That's pretty strong. That's a really important reason for this book. Um, of those five vital signs, uh, any that uh, maybe have more weight than others? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question, Dan. I think the, the first chapter on false positives, this is really the foundational question that it's really the engine of the car because it's asking, does your idea truly have voltage? And what I mean by that is, is there a there there? And, and does your intervention or your program or your business idea, does it even work at all? And, and you can say, well, this is crazy. This is obvious. But when you look at government programs, for example, 50, 70, 85% of government programs that are scaled were simply false positives. They should have never, ever been scaled. And the example that I use is Nancy Reagan in the D.A.R.E. program. And that was a program that didn't have voltage. It was a false positive. And we wasted millions of hours and hundreds of millions of dollars scaling that program. So I want the listeners to think about, first of all, false positives, it's really about, does the idea even merit scaling? So that, that's sort of the engine. And then I, I think that the main key after that is, was there something unique in either the population of people or the situational features that made your idea work? And there is never a way that you can replicate either the people or the situation at scale. And I think I see that mistake made all the time. In the example, one of the examples that I use in these chapters, of course, is restaurants. So there are a lot of restaurants that they have one restaurant and they're killing it. Maybe they have a million dollars in EBITDA. And they say, look, if we had 50 restaurants, we'd have $50 million in EBITDA. So let's scale, let's, let's have 50 restaurants. And they don't realize that if the initial success was because of the unique chef, they'll never scale because you can't find 50 unique chefs. But if your initial success was because of the ingredients and you can buy those ingredients at scale, now you're in business. You have an idea that can potentially make it. So I think that that's probably where I would start with any idea are along those two dimensions. 
Okay, no, that makes sense. I mean, you say several times in the book, and I think it's so true that human beings don't scale well. Uh, so uh, restaurant ingredients, you know, that scales more easily, or at least it can. Yeah. No, you're right, Dan. Let's, let's, you know, when I think about humans, let me, let me just add, add because that's an important point, is that, so just a general feature is any unique input won't scale. And that typically is a human. Now, the key that I see that, sometimes people make it work is if they systematize that human. So, so let's think about Uber. Uber and Lyft could scale because they didn't need Danica Patrick or Al Unser Jr. or Michael Schumacher as drivers, right? They, they just need people like you and me. Now, the next level they're going to is autonomous vehicles. And autonomous is systematizing one of the important labor costs, which is the drivers. So you can see the next level of scaling there is going to come into systematizing something. So there are cases where I've seen unique individuals being able to put into a system their secret sauce. And then if the organization uses that system, it can help. Okay. No, that make, that makes sense. Um, let's move to the, the voltage gains. Um, so that includes things like uh, using behavioral economic incentives, exploiting easily missed opportunities on the margins, knowing when to quit, which I found very interesting, and designing a high voltage culture, which I definitely will come to if that's not one of your choices. Uh, of those voltage gain practices, do you have a personal favor or one you think kind of looms a bit larger than the others? Yeah, you know, Dan, that's a good question. I think quitting probably just because learning about optimal quitting is so important for businesses, but it's also so important for, for us as individuals. And there are really two major reasons why people get the quitting problem wrong. And the first one is the fault of society. So, so Dan, you know I was raised in Wisconsin. And as a kid in Wisconsin in the late 60s, you can imagine that Vince Lombardi was a legend around Wisconsin. Vince Lombardi would say things like, winners never quit and quitters never win. And you were raised in a similar family as I was, a blue-collar family, bucolic family that, look, pull up the chin strap a day's wage is a day's worth of work and you do the best you can and you don't quit. And when I type in quitting and inspirational quotes into Google, what will come up is enough posters to fill every museum around the world. <laughs> right? I mean, that's just the truth. Quitting is repugnant. That's what society has taught us. So we tend not to quit in part for that reason. Now, we also have our own reason and our, and our own blemish, and that's we neglect our opportunity cost of time. Okay, now that's a lot of economies, so let me unpack that for you, Dan. Um, I did a big survey on people who have recently quit their jobs, and I asked them, put down some reasons for why you quit. Reason number one, I lost meaning of work. Reason number two, 
I didn't get the promotion that I thought I was going to get. Reason number three, I didn't get the pay raise that I thought I was going to get. Reason number four, I didn't get along with coworkers anymore. Dot, 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 all the way down to reason number 10, I didn't like my cubicle or my office anymore. Every reason, Dan, was because my current lot in life or my current job got soiled. Nobody ever said my opportunity set got better. The jobs out there for what I do just got so attractive that I left. People don't think like that because they ignore or neglect their opportunity cost of time. They don't think if I'm in this job, it means I can't be in that other job. It's just, we're just not wired to think that way. So because of that, we just don't quit enough. We don't quit enough because we don't recognize when our opportunity set changes, whether it's an apartment, a job, a relationship, whatever, we should constantly be looking at our opportunity set. And that should cause us to move just as often as when our current lot in life gets soiled. Okay. The, yeah. The opportunity to pivot. I, I, uh, just out of curiosity was uh, f- from your study was lost of meaning, lost meaning in the job. Was that number one? It was overall. It, okay. it was, it, it was especially number one amongst the millennials. So uh, amongst people say my age, it was more about, I became disenchanted with the whole environment and it included maybe uh, an argument with the boss but, but there was still meaning of work considerations. But the millennials and, say, the people under the age of 30 to 35, that was by far the number one reason. Yeah, no, that makes sense with other, other things I've been reading and, and my own instincts for that matter, just how much, uh, especially Gen Z, is activism-oriented. And if they don't feel like it's lining up in terms of meaningfulness, uh, huge problem. So um, that kind of brings me to the, the last question. Um, I love the fact that you had our last chapter on scaling culture because we both know that an awful lot of a company's monies get put into the workforce. And yet we're looking at a situation where what I believe nationally or even internationally, the level of, en- of employee engagement is something atrocious like 16% or 13%. I mean, those are just two numbers that don't go together easily. Spending a lot of money and no one's happy. And, and no one's committed to being productive. So talk to me about the scaling uh, culture chapter, uh, because I, I'm really interested in how that can apply. It seems obvious to me as a behavioral economist, you, you go to uh, what can we do on the consumer side? You know, we're marketing, we're trying to make a contact, we're trying to keep the revenue stream going. But there's people who make sure that revenue stream gets delivered on. And that's the workplace culture. So I would have come into the book thinking, my God, it's probably a little bit harder as a behavioral economist to let them start digging around among your workforce culture. But uh, then again, by the time I got done with the book, I said, that may not be true, but I'm just going to ask John his vantage point and what he's experienced. Yeah, exactly. No, it's great. great. That's just wonderful. So so you're right. So the the chapter nine is about when you build an organization, what are the best ways that you can think about early on to build a culture that you will not only be proud of, but also that you can grow into? And I, I of course, talk about Uber. 
And, and I think Uber was a great culture from, say, zero to $500 million you know, value. But after that, it became more difficult just because of the manner in which the culture was set up. It was set up in a way that was very combative. And there was less diversity, equity, and inclusiveness than, you know, what, let's say, a culture that can be healthy or, or can be scaled would, would have. Now, I think the broader point about the chapter is, you know, I bring forward my work on corporate social responsibility, which is a tool that many firms use to not only attract customers, but also to attract workers. And what I find in my own data is it's the latter value that is the true value to CSR. CSR allows you to attract a much more diverse and productive workforce than non-CSR jobs. So kind of point number one is the, the meaning of what the company is trying to do in terms of change the world if you're doing something that's good, you need to advertise that and advertise it especially to potential employees because that's going to be the way that you're going to attract the very best applicant pool. Now, the other features that I talk about go from the simple, really small nudges, such as how should I write my job advertisement? Should I write it to include words like, we're an equal employment opportunity agency or firm, or should I write it that wages are negotiable? So I talk about studies of my own where, where we test, you know, statements like if you include wages are negotiable, what does that mean? Well, in the end, what it means is that men and women will enter the job with more equal pay than if you don't have that sentence in your job advertisement. And the reason why is because when you put wages are negotiable, women will negotiate a lot more than if you don't include that sentence. Whereas if you have it in or don't have it in, men negotiate a lot in either case. So these are subtle changes in how we build our employee base that allow you to bring in people that are more equal. And they're super productive as well. So I think the culture can go all the way from initial ads to what does our company represent to how do we interact in the workplace and what are going to be the social norms that we have in place to enforce and celebrate diversity, equity, and inclusiveness. And I think in today's world, this is not only going to allow the firm to have a comparative advantage, it's going to make workers' lives a lot more enjoyable, especially their work lives. They're going to be a lot happier. So that's more or less what the chapter is about. And I juxtapose it, of course, with some fishing villages in Brazil that my research team visited. But I don't want to give that away because that's kind of a fun analogy for people when they get there in the book. They can kind of learn about these fishing villages and how that spilled over to their everyday lives. Yeah, no, I, we'll, we'll save that for the readers of the book. But uh, I want to thank you, John. This has been such an enjoyable interview. And I also want to thank my friend Jerry Lee, who suggested that I have you on as a guest because he's always interested in 
you know, policy programs that actually work out there in the world. Imagine that. Exactly. Um, so um, this has been episode 114, Does Your Idea Scale? Again, my guest has been John List. He is the author of The Voltage Effect, How to Make Good Ideas Great and Great Ideas Scale. If you've enjoyed today's show, of course, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can find other episodes right there at the New Books Network by typing in the show's name in the search bar and see the other 100-plus episodes. Finally, I like to take an epigram to conclude every episode. I don't usually take it from the book I just read, but in this case, I was struck by, because of that importance of quitting or optimal quitting, knowing when to quit. Uh, This quote you have in the book from Thomas Edison, who said, I haven't failed 10,000 times. I have successfully found 10,000 ways that will not work. (laughs) Until next time, take care and be well. Thank you so much. 